You know, in order to learn some things, sometimes you have to unlearn some things. Billy was at the Indianapolis airport, and he inquired about a flight to Chicago, not realizing Indianapolis was on the eastern time zone and Chicago on the central time zone. And uh, the lady at the counter, talking to him about a ticket, told him that the flight from Indianapolis would take off at 1 and arrive at 101. And she said, do you, do, you want, do you want to book a reservation? He said, no, but I'm going to stand here and watch that plane take off. <laughs> like some of you, I've been spending a good part of my life helping people unlearn some things. I've discovered oftentimes, as you're turning to Luke chapter 18, that religious people and good people have a very hard time embracing the biblical gospel of Christ. And pagans and secularists sometimes find it easier. Um, Many religious people have got some preconceived notions about God, and it's very hard to break through uh, preconceived notions about God, especially if they're wrong. Especially if they're antithetical to the gospel of Christ. And I have found in my witnessing that about 90% of religious people have got it all wrong. Sometimes it's easier for the person who is secular, pagan, no Christian background at all, no church background at all, to get it. Sometimes it's easier because everything is new. They've never heard it before, and they're not coming to God with a bunch of preconceived notions that have been reinforced by years and decades, in some cases, centuries of tradition and misguided thinking. That's the kind of story we come to in Luke chapter 18. There is an enormous jolting shock here in this text, where a religious person is portrayed by Jesus, and he got it all wrong. And the fellow that had nothing, the fellow who came to God with no preconceived notions at all, ends up getting it right. Now, that's my concern. Uh, This is reflected in the Scripture, in fact. Proverbs 30, verse 12. There's a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet not washed from its filthiness. Paul then said to the Corinthians, he said, a church he planted, by the way, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see if you're even in the faith. Test yourselves. And then Peter said in 2 Peter 1, 10, Make sure of your election and your calling. Now, some of these false notions um, I've heard through the years. I know of one woman who intensely insisted that her son was converted because when he was nine years old, he heard a sermon, climbed up in her lap and said, I don't want the devil to get me. And so there he prayed. And she marks that as the point of his conversion, even though... Never a single day after that did he live for Jesus Christ. In fact, he lived against him and had mixed world religions together and thought all the prophets like Christ and Muhammad were equal. See, the devil didn't, you know, he, he, he didn't want the devil to get him, so he's saved. Uh, there, there are others who would uh, say, well, I wanted to be a friend with Jesus, and we're friends, and he loves me. And so they prayed. There are others who would simply respond to a mother or father pressing them. 
or a bunch of other kids, maybe in a vacation Bible school stampede during the invitation. Um, Some have done that. Uh, I heard one young man in seminary who said, you know, I lack self-confidence, so I came to Christ. I didn't have any confidence. And I thought, well, you have no business having any confidence. What are you doing? And then there are some who want to be spiritual. There's, let me say, there is a lot of truth here. And that's exactly how the devil works. Do you know, Satan is not going to deceive religious people, Bible-believing people, church people, by proclaiming and pressing something entirely true. You, you would recoil at that. You would be bothered by that. That would get your attention, and you'd say, there's no way. I mean, a Mormon knocks on your door, Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, you're done with that. Oh, no. But what he will do is that he will always take truth and mix it with some error. And that's the way he gets the attention and souls of religious, uh, religious people. And Paul said, no wonder, because even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. In 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, So I'm terribly, terribly worried about the state of religion. Billy Graham was asked one time, why do you keep preaching to church people to be born again? He said, I believe there are three mission fields in the world. There's the international mission field, there's the home mission field, and there is the religious or the church mission field. Vance Hebner said, Satan isn't opposing churches this day, he's joining them. And his number one job is to get religious people to join churches without ever being born again and to give them a false sense of security. This man here in Luke chapter 18 had one that was really gross. Now, the notions I just mentioned, escaping the devil, not being harmed by him, responding to mom and dad, being spiritual, these kinds of things, there's a lot of truth here. But there's some confusion here as well. There are many people who confuse the root with the fruit. You see, they're wanting to escape the devil. They're wanting to be friends with Jesus. They are wanting to um, know God's love. They're wanting to respond to their mother and daddy. They're wanting to be spiritual. That's all good. I applaud that. But that's not the root or the beginning place of getting right with God or of salvation. That's not the root. That's the fruit. It's only when you come to Christ as a guilty sinner and trust the biblical gospel of Christ that you escape the power of the devil, that you become friends with Jesus, that you know the love of God, that, that um, you've responded appropriately to Him, that you can become, in a biblical sense, spiritual. It's only when you come to Jesus Christ as Savior, and that is why forever and forever and forever this preacher will constantly, weakly define the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of parables like this in Luke chapter 18. Here, Jesus made it real clear you've got to come to God in humility, beginning in verse 9 of Luke 18. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. 
or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We can come to God on His terms and be genuinely saved when we come to God in humility. And that point is pressed here with the sections of this parable. I want you to notice first the spiritual cause for the parable. A few weeks ago, I heard a preacher talk about heaven, and he said, he had the audacity to say to this crowd, he said, um, we can have heaven if we are faithful to God, if we obey, and if we pray. Ladies and gentlemen, I've got to say to you, that is a palatable and acceptable message in the vast majority of Christian churches. In fact, there's some here today that didn't hear, didn't hear the error and the grotesque error uh, in that statement. Let me repeat. We can have the promise of heaven if we will be faithful to God, if we obey, and if we pray. There's some of you here today that would agree with that statement. In fact, you've probably said something like it. But what you don't realize is that the entire New Testament was written to overthrow that notion and to completely dismiss it. And yet, someone with clergy clothing in a Christian church stood before the people and said that. Now, you know the problem with that. Not only is the New Testament written against that notion, but that, that kind of notion that we can actually obey God enough to get into heaven and be faithful enough to get into heaven is, is predicated upon the assumption that our sin really isn't that bad and God's not really that exacting and demanding. And usually what we do is we have to exaggerate how good we are and how virtuous we are, and we have to underestimate how holy God is. And so that kind of silly statement, not noxious statement, ends up overestimating self and underestimating the holiness of God is what happens. And that's what we find here in verse number 9. Look, also Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. They despised others. In other words, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous enough to approach God. In other words, they wondered, have I, gone, have I done all that I've done? Well, now that I've done and I'm convinced I've done everything I'm supposed to do, now I can approach God. Do you know something? I've had that problem at times myself. I have. Before I've served the Lord, I've gone through my week and I've thought, you know, have I had enough quiet times? Did I spend enough time in prayer? Um, did uh, I do this, that, and the other thing? And then on that basis, coming to the pulpit when I was younger in hope that I would have the power of God on my life. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a self-righteous based view of the grace and help of God. Can I say to you, I have never prayed enough or read the Bible enough to have God's blessing in the pulpit. I've never done that. And I will never be able to achieve that. And so I need to do it out of love and gratitude and a sense of personal need. But the truth is, I've never done it enough to get any of those from God. Anything God has ever given me in my ministry and service is only because God is good and gracious and He loves the people and He loves me. See? 
So I, I made that mistake of trusting in myself. Well, there are some who are trusting that they will be okay before God after death because they've done enough. And they said, I've done this, I've done that, I've done the other thing. And look, look at the uh, companion of that notion of thinking. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. In other words, they had some contempt for other people that were not as righteous as them. They had something of a low-level anger about them. They, they would get upset. Their, their first response to these kinds of people happened to be a, a low-level frustration, low-level anger instead of compassion and love and concern. These two oftentimes go together. Anytime we think that we're better than other people, we're usually self-righteous in doing so. Now, let me make it clear. There are some behaviors that are better that God has prescribed. There are some attitudes that are better that God has prescribed. There are some practices that are better that God has prescribed. There are no people, though, that are better. And there never have been since the fall in the Garden of Eden. So God's way is better, but none of us are. And if we achieve anything, it's because of the grace of God. Now, don't be like some people I've seen through the years. They discovered that they feel like they're better than other people and that they despised others. And so they just end up changing places and people. They become very remorseful and they stop looking down on other people except those who look down on other people. And they call other people Pharisees. And that's generally oftentimes the biggest problem here. But at the, uh, with the conclusion of the matter, the truth is they still feel like they're better than other people. At one time, they felt like they were better than the scandalous and the sinful. And now they think that they're better than the righteous and the rigid and the, those who are especially legalistic. Got to be careful of both. They're both the same person. Because they still feel like they're better than others, and they still look down upon people who are different than them. People who value compassion can be some of the most self-righteous people in the world. They're still the same people as this Pharisee. We've got to be extremely careful about that. So Jesus directs this story at anyone who thinks he or she is better and others are worse. But there's a second section. Not only the spiritual cause, but also the startling contrast. Now, in Jesus' day at the temple, they would offer up two sacrifices a day, one at 9 o'clock and one at 3, and the Pharisee and this tax collector are apparently there at the temple at this time when the offering is made, and they would offer prayers, and the priest would offer a sacrifice. Now let's look first at the Pharisee. The Pharisee is the best of the best. The, the Scripture says in verse 11, he prayed thus within himself. Now this is probably double entendre, meaning he prayed, and his prayer didn't get beyond him. It certainly didn't reach God. But then, as a Pharisee, he's probably set off from everyone else because he doesn't want to be contaminated by the presence of others. And I don't know if you noticed in the prayer or not, but he doesn't ask God for anything. He just brags before God about who, what, who he is and what he has not done and a few of the things he has done. He doesn't come before God confessing any need for any mercy. In fact, God hardly... God hardly factors into this prayer at all. But then he's got some impressive negatives. Look there in verse number 11. Here's his negatives. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners. He swindled people, pressured people financially. Uh, that, that's what an extortioner is. Unjust or an adultery, uh, an adulterer, or even like this tax collector. 
These are probably about all the things the tax collector was. He's saying, this is not what I am. And the truth is, he's probably right. He probably did not engage in extortion. He probably was not unjust by the evaluation of others. He, he probably was not adult, an adulterer, and he never behaved that way at all. So he's probably entirely correct, but his heart is entirely wrong. And we move on to his impressive positives. Look what he said in verse 12. I fast twice a week. Well, the law required once a year. Well, this guy is going beyond that. He's doing more than what is required. He's fasting twice a week. And usually uh, they would uh, fast on the days in the market when the market was the heaviest and the most populated so others could see them. And so he said, I fast twice a week, then I give tithes of all I possess. Well, you're supposed to tithe off your income, but he was so meticulous about tithing, he would even tithe 10% of the herbs he might grow off his back door at his home. And so he's got some really impressive positives. He's got some impressive negatives as well. And yet this man went back home and he was not justified before God. He was still... He was still condemned before God. God still had a problem with him no matter what. God still had a problem with him. Reminds me of the fellow who uh, decided to get in shape and he went to the gym. He asked a trainer, he said, um, hey, tell me, which one of these machines can I use real quickly that will make me look good in front of the ladies? The trainer looked him over and said, you might want to try the ATM out in the lobby. <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of view he's got of himself. He's exalted in his own eyes. He's overconfident and he has misplaced confidence. Now, that's the Pharisee. Look at the tax collector. Tax collectors would usually bid on their position. And they had a quota, financial quota they had to meet to turn into Rome. And anything they collected above that, they could keep for themselves. And so it was, it was a position that was really suitable for a greedy, malicious, uh, manipulative uh, bully type of person. And that's how most of the tax collectors were. They were despised in Israel in most ways. This man is the worst of the worst. Now, let me illustrate just how shocking this text is in relationship to the tax collector. Let's imagine that instead of a tax collector praying here, we have this scenario. You've got a Baptist kid that grows up in the church and goes on the, all the mission trips, does all the vacation Bible schools, has attended and was faithful. Uh, the family, very, very supportive, a model family. But finishes high school, goes off to freshman year in college and begins to doubt the existence of God. By the time he's a sophomore, he's an atheist. By the time he's a junior, he's going to law school. By the time he's a senior, he's decided he's going to spend his life suing churches. He gets his law degree and he begins to sue churches for using the word church in public on their signs. It's coercing other people to think about church. And he begins to sue churches to take the cross off their steeple. That's a public display of their religion. And anything he can find, he does. He's very hostile and very aggressive, manipulates the court, manipulates the law to go after churches. Then he marries... Mary's a woman, has four kids, and she gives her heart and soul to Jesus Christ. She comes to the Lord. Because she's converted, he divorces her. He does a Shania Twain. He says, man, I feel like a woman, takes up with another man. Okay? And moonlights as a model for lame, bryant clothing. 
and keep suing churches and religious people. Sues anyone that's got a Christian bumper sticker on the car. One Sunday morning, he shows up. The pastor preaches. The invitation is extended. And he walks down the aisle and he covers the altar in his tears and repents and gets right with God. That is what you've got here in this text. This is how shocking and this is how jolting it is for a tax collector to pray. And his prayer is unvarnished. It's not covered with any sealant, not with any gloss, nothing at all. He simply cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what takes place here. This is how jolting and how shocking this happens to be. There's physical reaction here in the presence of the temple. Now, off in the temple, as he's praying, there's a sacrifice going on, and that previews the death of Jesus Christ. So here's the physical reaction. He's standing at a distance. And by standing, he's protecting the integrity of the temple. He's afraid he will pollute it if he gets any closer. And then he looks down. He will not lift his eyes from the ground. And what he's doing here, he's being entirely humble before God. And then he's beating his chest. This is in the imperfect tense in the Greek text, which means repeatedly he's slamming his chest with his fist. Most uh, Middle Eastern men in the first century and subsequent centuries would not engage in this behavior. This is typical mourning patterns for women. But in Luke chapter 23, we find a rare instance where men would do so in here in Luke 18. And that is, in Luke 23, the death of Jesus Christ causes some of the men present to beat and slam their chest repeatedly with their fist. Just like this. And this is what this man does. He is in intense mourning over his guilt and sin before God. So there's a physical reaction here. You know, that happens oftentimes, and I hope it will happen today. I'll finish the message and we'll sing a song and we'll do what is called the invitation. And we do that because God invites you to get right with Him through Jesus Christ and to do it for free simply by faith in the cross and resurrection. So as we sing in just a moment, I hope you'll come because God has opened up the doorways and the gates of heaven for you to come into grace and blessing and He doesn't want you to wait. He commands all men everywhere to repent now and to come to Him. And staff will be here when we're Uh, As we're singing, you come and give your heart and life to Christ or make that decision that God wants you to make. So um, there's a physical reaction here, but then there's a passionate request. And he makes a request for exchange. Look at verse 13 in the first part. And the tax collector standing afar off will not so much raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful. Now in verse 38, later in the chapter, you find another prayer be merciful to me. It's a different Greek word that's used in this text. The ordinary Greek word for mercy is used in verse 38. Here, in verse number 13, it's an entirely different word. And it is the word that is translated other places, propitiate. In Romans 3.25 and 1 John 4.10, God, propitiate yourself for me because I'm the sinner. God, propitiate yourself. Well, what does it mean to propitiate? Well, it means to satisfy. It means to satisfy. When you pay off a car note or you pay off a mortgage, you have satisfied it. This man says, God, I cannot satisfy you. As that sacrifice is being made over in that temple and the blood of that innocent lamb is being spilt, would you please satisfy yourself with that? Because God, I can't do it. 
I'm not overestimating my righteousness. I'm not overestimating my virtue. God, I'm clear. I'm not enough. I don't have enough. I can't get right with you on my own. Would you please then satisfy yourself with that sacrifice going on in the temple? And you know something? That's what God does because God loves us. He sent Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but those of the whole world. And so whether you're in or whether you're out, Jesus' death and His cross is enough to cancel every sin. You're not enough. You can't do enough. But the blood of Jesus is satisfactory to God the Father, the judge of all the earth. Oh, that's good news. That's good news. So you don't have to come before God faking like you're righteous and that you're enough and that you can satisfy Him. You can't. You never had to. You never will. That's why there's Jesus. That's why there's Jesus. So he's asking for an exchange. God, you're the one that receives, and I'm supposed to be the one that gives. Would you mind now if we just swap places? Can I receive grace, oh God, and can you give the sacrifice in my place? So there's an exchange here. So it's a request for an exchange, but then it's a request with emphasis. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Literally in the Greek text. You've got the indefinite article in some of your English translations. In the Greek text, it is the definite article, the. That's never used by accident in the Greek New Testament. God, would you please be merciful, satisfy yourself for me, the sinner. Of all the sinners in the world, I feel like I am the top of them all. I am the worst of the worst. I'm not just one among many. I'm so sinful, I'm outside the ordinary classification of sinners. I'm busted, I'm broken, I'm bankrupt, I'm it. I'm the worst sinner that's ever lived. It is emphatic here. And if you'll come to God with that kind of heart, He's going to hear you. You come to God requesting exchange, and you come to God with that kind of emphasis, well, look what happens. That's not all. Then, with effect, look at verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. It was effective. He was justified after crying out to God like this. Do you know what that means? Beloved, do you understand what that means? That means he came to God as the worst of the worst, and he left cleared completely of all guilt, of all sin. God began to interact with this man as if he had never sinned before in his life. And God's willing to do that. This is the kind of salvation and gift of grace he arranged through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was effective. And you make this request this morning at the end of the message during our invitation. You make this request and Jesus is going to meet you where you are and exchange your life for His and your guilt for His righteousness. And if you'll come to Him emphatically, He will save you emphatically and it will be effective and you can leave instantaneously and eternally clean before God, never to be dirtied up again. Well, wait, I'm going to sin in the future. Well, God forgives that, all the future sins, the moment you receive Him. He, listen, He knows you're going to fail Him. He takes you anyway because the blood of Jesus Jesus is enough to cover all sin. Man, it doesn't get any better than that. Don't you wish you were a preacher? <laughs> Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus put it this way. 
He said, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And that's where you are. You've tried so hard and you just can't get it right. You were never supposed to. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls. Listen, please please hear this. God is more exacting and demanding than you have ever imagined. But He's more gracious than you will ever need. And He'll give that to you today. Well, that's the second section of this parable. But there's a final one. And that is the surprising conclusion. In the first century, they were very much in awe of the Pharisees. Today, we look down upon the Pharisees. They didn't then. And so you have to change your thinking about the Pharisees when reading the New Testament. The Pharisees were very admired, and they were laymen. They they were not clergy. They, They weren't salesmen. They were satisfied customers of Phariseeism. And they were meticulous, knowledgeable, exact, precise, faithful. And and not all the Pharisees were bad. There were some that were really lovely people. Nicodemus happens to be one of them. But this is what we find, that in the first century, most people were in awe of the Pharisee. They were uncomfortable with tax collectors. And this conclusion in verse number 14 is jaw-dropping. Look at the last sentence here. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. For many years now, one of the methods I've used to talk to people about Christ is that I've used a little simple uh, seven-question survey. And it starts off like, um, uh, in your opinion, do more people go to church today or fewer? Is it important to read the Bible? Why or why not? What age groups or issues do churches need to give more attention to? In your opinion, what does it take to go to heaven and have eternal life? And then we follow that up about 90% of the time with the question, may I share some Bible verses with you? I remember one survey I was administering years ago in Augusta, Georgia, talking to a woman in front of a shopping center. The church was out, and we were doing some ministries in the community, and began to talk with her, and she began to tell us of all the music ministry she was involved in and all the activities she was involved in at her church. And she said that I lead the choir, and, and, and this is why she was hoping that she knew the Lord and she was a Christian. And the thought came to my mind, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you say through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, what? lest any man should boast. She was telling us about her achievements. She was not telling us about Jesus' achievements. So I witnessed and shared the gospel with her. Our hope has got to be placed in Jesus Christ. Now, at another survey location in East Texas one time, we went to a very low-income apartment complex and were surveying, and the place had a reputation of being the low-income place with a lot of drug use and prostitution. And we knocked on her door and found a lady home during a time of the day when she probably shouldn't have been home. And 
She couldn't have been 30, but she probably looked like she was about 60. And from head to toe, she was covered with stress and mistreatment. I mean, I, this was years ago, and I still can't forget how worn and weary she looked. But I went through the survey, and she said I could share some Bible verses with her. She didn't know how you could get to heaven. In East Texas, of all places. I could understand that in Auburn, but not East Texas. But I, I, I told her that uh, the Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus knew no sin, but He became sin for us. And those of us who didn't know righteousness could become righteous in, in Him. And I said, I called her name, and I said, I want you to think for a moment of the worst thing that you've ever done. She had a physical reaction when I asked that question. She flinched. And I could only imagine. I, I didn't ask. I said, you don't have to tell me. Now, if I can help and it would help you to talk, I'll, I'll be glad to listen. But you don't have to tell me. And I said, when Jesus was bleeding on the cross and dying there, He became that sin you just thought of. That's what He did. And God the Father treated him on the cross as if he was guilty of that. And you think about all the mistreatment and ugliness in the world. That's what Jesus became at the cross. I said, now, now think of all the good things that Jesus did. Well, when you open up your heart to him, and you come to him broken and humble, God gives you all that righteousness and credits you with it. Jesus wants to exchange places with you. He who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And right there, unlike the fine upstanding woman in Augusta, this woman, poor and needy and broken, opened up her heart to Christ and went the rest of that day in the entirety, now the entirety of her life in eternity, justified cleansed as if she had never done anything wrong is what happened to her that day. In Jerusalem, they would have to go up to the temple, no matter north, south, east, or west. Jerusalem is a city set on a hill, so you would climb up. Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified. The Pharisee went up, and he went down condemned. This man went up condemned, and he went down justified. It reminds me of the young preacher preaching his first sermon, and he was too confident in himself and his preparation. And he got up into the pulpit, and his mind went blank. He stuttered and stammered around and could hardly communicate. He really embarrassed himself in that first sermon. And his older pastor mentor was sitting in the congregation listening to him. And when the suffering was done and he brought the message to a close, service was over and he walked down and he said, what happened? And the pastor said, listen, if you had gone up the way you came down, you would have come, come down the way you went up. If you'll come before God broken and humbled as a prostitute, 
if you will come as if you're that guilty, if you'll come before God as if you're as guilty as a murderer, an abuser, if you'll come to God, God will make you just before Himself. If you come any other way, there's no hope. Are you hearing me? If you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. But you humble yourself, you will be exalted by God Himself. I want to give three conclusions this morning and three applications to this. One involves children. We have got to be very, very careful what we teach church kids about themselves, God, and the world. We must carefully teach our children that all good things come to us by God's grace. Paul said even in 1 Corinthians 15.10, I labor more than thy, them, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. If they have better attitudes and better behavior, we need to let them know that in a moment they could end up ruining all of that because of the sinful nature. And anything good in our lives is there because God put it there. He's gracious and He's good. But there's a second thing, and that is confession. All of our prayers need some heart-rending confession. And then third, conversion. We must ensure our conversion is prompted by our guilt. We recognize that we're guilty before God. We desire to get right with God and an accurate knowledge of Christ's gospel. That Jesus does the work, we accept the gift. And He's calling on some of you today. He's calling on you today to come to Him. Hebrews 3, 7 and 8 say, Do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear His voice, harden not your heart as in the day of rebellion. God's calling your heart. He's speaking to you. He's got your attention. You're feeling uneasy. You're feeling, um, you're feeling uh, like you're under his, his spotlight. He's moving on you to make a decision for Him. He's calling you. It's not like some of the calls I get. I get these phone calls every once in a while from folks wanting to sell me a free vacation. I can quite figure that one out. That's not the kind of call God's giving you right now. What He's placing on your heart is the kind of call that I get from my wife when she says, dinner's ready, come home. It's ready. It's time to come home. Well, people, if I come today, I'll be embarrassed. You'll be embarrassed if you don't. And these people are going to celebrate that decision. They're going to be really thrilled because a lot of them have been through what you're about to go through. And they don't want you under that deception any longer. It's time to come. Will you let me pray for you? Quietly stand with me, please, and let's do so.